You know, God's love, God's love never fails, amen? amen? It's about as constant as anything that we're going to ever know on this earth. It's God's love. It never fails. It just increases. It has to because God is never ending, right? I, sp- I believe that we're going to spend all of eternity trying to understand and understand the depth and the breadth and the width of God. And I don't think we'll ever get to the end of it. How can we? He's eternal. And I think all of eternity is going to be him unfolding new aspects and new aspects and new aspects to the believers. Amen? But it's his love. God is love. Amen? Well, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Jeff Solscheid. And the reason why the offerings are important to me is that I'm the finance administrator here. So... We do have to pay for the lights, we have to pay for the seats, we have to pay for everything that you see, and so uh, God has certainly been good in the finances since I've been involved with the church over the last four years. God has certainly met our needs, and I would say even in an abundant way, so praise God for that. Um, And I'm also an elder here too, so anyways, um, as I said in the first service, I think I've preached a total of, well, three times after this morning. So the other two times were, uh, uh, one time was in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. I was in uh, the Kabira slum in Nairobi. The Kabira slum is one of the world's largest slums. Between 800,000 and a million people and 500 square acres. So just kind of wrap your mind around that. Very concentrated. I mean, it captures every sense in a negative way. It smells horrible. It looks disgusting. Um, But I had the opportunity to preach in a church within the slum there. And then another time in Accra, Ghana. Now, Accra, Ghana, Nairobi, Kenya is about 5 million people. You know, that's, that's a big number. We don't have many cities in the United States that exceed 5 million. Accra, Ghana is about, about 2.5 million people. There's a lot of big cities in the, in, on the continent of Africa. But I had an opportunity to preach in a smaller church uh, there as well. So this morning was my first time in America preaching. This will be my second time, so hopefully I won't uh, disappoint. Um, I'll do the best that I can. Um, and I'll try to keep it as exciting as possible. I am a finance guy. I love numbers. All right? I'm going to try not to bore the heck out of you guys, Okay. Um, I do have a few, uh, few questions for you, and this is, this is along the lines of finance in the Bible. So I want you guys to just feed me some answers here. So if I ask you, who is the most successful investor in the Bible, who would that be? Solomon. Solomon? Good answer. What? Anybody else? Joshua. Joshua. Jesus. The lady with the might, yeah, that's, those are all good answers. What if I said it was Noah? Huh? You believe me? You know what? He floated stock while everything around him went into liquidation. <laughs> right? Okay. We've got to have a little levity here now. Come on. And for you women, who was the most successful woman in the Bible? Now you know where I'm headed with this, so now you're thinking different, right? Yeah. What's that? Queen Esther Esther is a good answer, but wrong. Deborah, Deborah, good answer, but wrong. 
How about Pharaoh's daughter? She went to the Nile bank and floated a prophet. Okay. I'll be performing nightly. Uh, <laughs> no, but more seriously, uh, I want to talk about, you know, we're in the process of talking about pursuing God, and we're talking about pursuing God's power, and uh, tonight we're going to talk about power, and specifically how faith is the generator of that power in our walk. Um, so power, the definition of power is the ability to act or produce an effect, possession of authority over others. Now, in our, our lexicon here in the, in the United States, in English, we use power in a, number of, in a number of ways. We have power lunches. We have power couples. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, power couple, right? Uh, power ties. You know, those guys uh, in, uh, in the business world, yellow signifies power. Yellow tie, power ties. We have power hitters in baseball, right? Those guys in baseball got power hitters. We have power struggles in the political realm. But God's definition of power is a little bit different. Now, if you take a look at the word power in the concordance, I think there's about almost two dozen different examples of the use of the word power. But the one that I like is the, is the, the power, the word, the, uh, the word power used in the book of Acts, and specifically chapter 1, verse 8 where it says, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, that word power, the Greek word for that is dunamis. That is the root word of our English word dynamite. That is the type of power that God wants us to have. And now this is talking about the infilling of the Holy Spirits with the evidence of speaking in tongues. But I would argue that without faith, how can you receive that? Because that infilling, that manifestation of speaking in tongues, is invisible. We have to have faith to see the invisible, amen? <clears throat> what is a Christian's power? It is faith. It's a simple little word, five letters. <clears throat> Matthew 9, 29 says, Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, it done to you. What does that imply to you? That implies to me that there's different levels of faith. That things can happen, whether it's healing, whether it's a release of prosperity, it's contingent upon your level of faith. So when God answers prayer and moves in a certain way, we have to do our part. We have to allow faith to grow. And how does that happen? We're going to talk about that a little later on. But be it unto you according to your faith. Mark eleven twenty two and 24. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Is your faith in God or is your faith in man? Is your faith in the economy? Is your faith in your job? This clearly says our faith needs to be in God. 
And I, I mentioned it a little bit ago. If we take a look at constant things in this world, there's really not one thing that is constant in this world. Constant means immovable. The only thing, the closest thing we're going to get to constant physical thing is going to be the sun. It doesn't move. But everything else in our life changes. So our faith in God needs to be constant, and we need to believe without doubting. Hebrews 10, 38, but my, righteous, my, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We as Christians need to walk in faith, not by sight, but in faith. And a lot of times I equate that to stepping outside the boat. If you take a look at the, the two parables of where Jesus was in the boat or out of the boat, the one time where Jesus was asleep in the boat and the storm was raging, the other example, the parable where Jesus was out on the water calling, uh, calling uh, Peter out of the boat, where was the place to be in each one of those examples? The one time the right answer was to be in the boat where Jesus was. The other example was to be outside the boat. So the answer is, okay, where is Jesus? Wherever Jesus is, that's where we need to be. Sometimes he's in the boat, sometimes he's out of the boat. But I think a lot of times he is calling us outside the boat, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our natural protection to get us out in the water where he can do what he does best. And that's to, to do the miraculous. Requires faith, though. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.6, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of them that, he, that diligently seek him. We cannot please God without faith. Our works are as, are as filthy rags. The only thing that pleases God is our faith and faith in him. Believing him at what he says he will do without doubting. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds of other faith scriptures that I could share with you, but those are just a couple that um, um, we'll focus on. I've heard the, the term faith described as the currency of heaven. Now, I like that. Being a finance guy, money is everything, right? It's the currency of heaven. Without dollars in our pocket... We can't go to the grocery store. We can't pay rent. It's what moves our economy, supply and demand. Faith is that currency in heaven. Dollars, pesos, euros have no impact in a heavenly realm. But our faith does. That is what moves God's economy. That's what moves God's hand. Faith also sees the invisible. A lot of things that require faith, we cannot comprehend with the eyes of our head, but only with the eyes of our heart. Now, we had a problem technically with uh, an example, and I know some of you have probably already seen this, but I like using this because it, it uh, illustrates and emphasizes my point here. Who likes puzzles? You like puzzles? I got a good one for you then, okay? I'm going to hold up some pages, and I'm going to ask you, I've got what I call nine dots. And you guys can play around with this. You can draw nine dots just like this. It's three rows of three, totally nine dots. 
Your challenge is to connect all nine dots with four straight lines without lifting your pen or pencil off the paper. I challenge you to do that. Those are the only rules. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Play around with it. See if you can do it. Connect the nine dots, four straight lines, cannot curve. You cannot lift the pen off the paper. See if you can do it. Nine dots. All right. I'm going to give you a clue. What if I said the first line would look like this? How many of you in your mind drew an imaginary barrier around the outside of those nine dots? How many? Be honest. A lot of people did. Do we do that in the spirit? When God didn't say, I didn't say, I said four straight lines. I didn't say that it had to be within the dots, did I? But isn't that like the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will say something, but we interpret it through dirty filters, our natural thinking. This is the solution. The only way you can solve that problem is going outside the dots. Now I say outside the dots is where the Holy Spirit operates. That's what takes faith. You have to look beyond your mind's eye and interpret with your heart. I did this in Tajikistan. We were, uh, I was over there in May... We were helping Alessandro train his Bella Pizza employees. And so we had one side of the room, we had Russian employees, and then we, on the other side, we had Afghan employees. So if you've, ever, if you've ever gone abroad and had to work through a translator, I would challenge you to work through two translators. Because I would say something, it would be translated into Russian over here, translated into Dari over here, and then things just didn't even translate culturally. And so, you know, you would say a sentence or two, and it would take you three minutes to get the, the full meaning of it at, at the respective levels. But this was one of those aha moments for them when they saw this. They just, you know, could not believe it. But they, they made the connection of the spiritual, the faith aspect that it takes to solve this problem to apply to their spiritual lives. So I always like that. Another example is those 3D pictures. You ever seen those 3D pictures? A friend will tell you, you know, you look at that dot, you stare hard enough, there's going to be a, a, a dragon that'll pop out, you know? How many times did, I know how many times I tried to look at that picture and I said, God, I can't see that dragon. And then all of a sudden, aha, it just pops out. The answer is there. We just can't see it. And I think the answer to healing, I think the answer to prosperity, I think the answer to everything that God wants to do is right in front of our eyes. But we cannot see it because we are not looking at it through the right prism. The book, uh, Twilight Labyrinth, written by George Otis Jr. Now, it's a thick book, very descriptive and gets into some very intricate detail with regards to scientifics relating to spiritual, spiritual things. But there's one part in that book where he says that scientifically and mathematically, 
it has been proven that there are as many as 10 dimensions in our universe. 10. What are we living in right here? Three, maybe four. Height, width, width, depth, and you could add time as a fourth dimension. But there's another six dimensions out there that who knows what they are. But you know what? God is operating in that tenth dimension. He sees everything that we need in our dimension. Imagine us being in this four-dimensional world looking on a two-dimensional problem. It would be easily solved, right? That's how God sees things. He sees things so far above what we see. We have to tap into that, and the only way we can do that is by faith and believing that he is the creator of this universe, that he is bigger than anything that we can comprehend in our own mind. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by our physical senses. We cannot operate in the supernatural until we are believers in the invisible. Now think about that. How many times do we pray for the supernatural signs and wonders following? We better have faith to believe in the invisible first. <clears throat> and contrary to what the world says, seeing is not believing for a Christian. We need to believe without seeing. The world says you see to believe. Faith is also personal. You cannot draft off of someone else's faith. Is everybody familiar with the term draft? It's in bicycling, you'll see it in swimming, you'll see it in long distance running where a person goes out into the lead and the other runners or the other bicyclers will get behind that lead person. That's what they call drafting because that lead person is penetrating, breaking through the wind and, and taking on all that resistance where everybody else can, you know, kind of rest and coast. That's what's called drafting. I can't rely upon Maggie's faith to get me through life. I can't rely upon Joe's faith to get me through life. It has to be my faith, my faith in God. And so <clears throat> it's a personal thing. You cannot rely upon somebody else's faith to get you through life. It's also an add-on to our five senses. Um, I kind of liken this to, uh, you know, I've got any poker players here, you know, five-card draw. It's almost like getting a sixth card playing five-card draw. We as Christians should have an advantage because we get that sixth sense. It's not ESP. It's faith, and it's faith in God. We get that extra card to play against the world, and that card is faith. That's a huge advantage, right? It also comes by hearing. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, personally, I love that, I love that scripture because um, I said, I've sat on the board of a Christian ministry called Faith Comes by Hearing, which translates the gospel into an audio format for the poorest of the poor, the illiterate of the world. So that's a very near and dear scripture to my heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it also does not come from experience but can come through an experience. And what I mean by that, just because you hit a certain age, let's say you turn 40, that doesn't mean you automatically get an extra layer of faith. 
if you get a degree or an MBA from George Fox University, that doesn't mean your faith is just going to increase as a result of your accomplishment, okay. right? <clears throat> but through an experience, and I'm going to share with you my experience that helped me increase my faith, but you go through things in life, whether it's a, a cancer diagnosis, whether it's financial collapse, whatever it is, that experience, if you allow it to will perfect your faith, will allow your faith to grow. And also, faith, when coupled with prayer, it unleashes the abundance of heaven. You cannot have faith without prayer. Prayer and faith go together. It's not addition, it's multiplication. Faith plus prayer, no, it doesn't work. It's faith times prayer. And it's almost like exponential power that comes when you couple your faith with prayer. Prayer is what moves God's hand, amen? And if you have faith to believe in God, that prayer is, almost, is like the fuel in the engine of faith that gives us the power in the spirit. And what is the enemy's weapon against our faith? Simply put, it's a four-letter word that starts with F, and it's fear. Right? One of the things that I had to deal with, and I'll share my, my testimony, was I had fear of failure. People may have fear of men. They may have fear of heights. They may have fear of who God only knows what. But fear can be paralyzing. And that is, just like, uh, just like um, faith is the, is the currency in heaven, fear is the devil's currency. If he can get us to fear, that will lead to doubt. And with doubt, we cannot have faith. Fear and faith cannot coexist. They're just incompatible. They just cannot coexist. Now, they both start with F, but that doesn't mean they're not the same. They're totally opposite. I liken this to... Uh, fear opens the door for the enemy. And if you let him ride, all he's going to want to do is drive. Does that make sense? You let him in the car, he's not content with just sitting in the passenger side. He's going to want to take control. And that is so typical of the enemy. We let down our guard. We let him into our lives. But you know what? He is not content with just coming into our lives. He is coming to kill, steal, and destroy. And a lot of times, he, he will use fear in our life because if he can deflate our faith or derail our faith, he has a chance of winning. Lessening faith will cause you to lose your destiny. This is absolutely the enemy's plan. He is trying to get us derailed. He's trying to take our focus off the creator of the universe. He is trying to keep our focus off working and operating in the supernatural. <clears throat> and what is the antidote to fear? 1 John 4.8 says, perfect love casts out all fear. We need to be contaminated with the perfect love of God. The only way that you can be contaminated with the perfect love of God is getting contaminated with the perfect God. 
Because the Bible says that God is love. He is perfect. And it's his love that will cast out all fear. It's not my love. It's not your love for me. It's God's love. And if we fully understand how much God loves us, we fully understand that he laid his life down for us, that is the perfect antidote against fear. Now, I'll share a little bit of my testimony here. Um, the first time I shared this publicly was this morning. So the, the devil likes to get you to a point where he has done, that the Lord has done something so great, he will allow things in your life that will prevent you from sharing. And I'm here to tell you that God has done something remarkable, and I would say supernatural in my life, that I would like to share with you. And it has to do with finances. Um, we, st we started coming to this church in uh, 1997, so we weren't part of the original church plant. We came uh, a couple months later, so it was Robin, who's my wife, and our three kids, Nick, Brooke, and Matt. We started coming here, and for about the first two years, we'd have traveling prophets come in, and uh, it really began, it began to be a joke, where every time they would come in, we would, I would get pulled out, and there would always be a prophetic word over me. Now, it had nothing to do with me wearing a neon shirt or a flashing tie or anything like that, but I was always pulled out, and it was always, the word was always a prophetic word on wealth. And these were big words, too. These weren't just small words. These were big words. I mean, it was something that, at that time, I mean, I was working for the Pepsi-Cola company. I worked for Pepsi for 17 years as a regional finance director. So I had a good job. Well, you know, not an ex excellent paying job, but, you know, I had a good, decent job, but I was, I was, you know, very middle class, very middle class. And so the whole concept of wealth was not something that I was familiar with at that point in time. So, you know, I would take those words, you know, at face value and pray f over them, put them on the shelf. And, you know, if the Lord was going to do it, he was going to do it in his time. But I was going to be ready. Well, it wasn't going to be because I didn't pray about it and didn't cover it in prayer. There was one prophetic word in November of 2001 that was spoken over me by Doug Lambert. Now, does anybody remember Doug Lambert? Yep, Doug and we were having a, a meeting. We had the, the whole uh, um, sanctuary filled. There's probably 500, maybe even 600 people here at that time. And before he got up to, to, to uh, preach, he said, Jeff, I have a word for you. And I think it was sitting over in this section over here. He said, Jeff, I have a word for you. You always get a little nervous when you get pulled out of the crowd like that. But I said, okay. So I stood up. He says, Jeff, the Lord is going to pour out a great amount of wealth in your life. Now, I'm paraphrasing this. It was a little bit longer than this, but I'm going to paraphrase this. He said, you're going, to, you're going to learn what it means to have wealth and to be a good steward of that wealth. But I'm going to show you how to do business or, and how not to do business, and then I'm going to show you how to do business. So in November 2001, my interpretation was, okay, I'm working for Pepsi. How not to do business is what I've been doing. And at that particular time, I was being courted by a Christian brother to go into a partnership as, a, as an owner in a land development company. So my thinking was, how to do business, Christian brother, Christian business, Christian principles, 
you know, we're going to do it. So I made the leap, and uh, it was the right thing to do. It was absolutely, you know, God-ordained, and it wasn't a bad decision at all. Um, over the course of the next four years, we had built up a land development company that was worth probably in the neighborhood of $200 million. We had projects up and down uh, the West Coast, Rocky Mountain Corridor, you know, between at any particular point in time, 15 and 24 uh, projects. But if you, you took all those projects, you completed the development, it was about $200 million at that time. Then the crash hit. That was 2007. Now, we, being land developers, a lot of people here may not have seen and experienced the real estate crisis until maybe later 2008, 2009 as homeowners. But when you're a real estate developer, a land developer in particular, we were on the front end of that process. It was the land developers first, it was the builders second, and then it was the homeowners last. So we were on the front end of that. So in the middle of 2006, we began to see a, a, a significant restriction in lending. We could not get development loans. So I began to see this constriction of, of, of profits that were going to be coming through those projects that were in the pipeline. And at that particular point in time, I began to fast and pray for our business. Now keep in mind, this is a Christian business. God promised that he would prosper this business. He pro promised that he, you know, at least I interpreted that he would not let it fail. So I was going to roll up my sleeves. I was going to do what a good Christian does. And that's, I'm going to believe for this. I'm going to contend for this. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm, saying that. I'm not saying that that's the wrong thing to do. But that's, that was my mindset. After about six months of, of prayer walking and fasting on my lunch hour, six months, I began to see that God was not going to resurrect this thing. He was not going to do it. It shook my, it shook my faith. Because the prophetic word, this is the right thing. This is how to do business. And so we began to see after that six months, banks were calling their loans Real estate projects started losing anywhere between 40 and 60% of their value. Banks making equity calls. We were doing everything by the book. We weren't, we weren't over leveraged in our, in, our, in our projects. We were adequately leveraged. But when you start losing value of anywhere between, anywhere between 40 and 60%, you cannot keep up with that. Now you're throwing good money after a bad cause. So I started to see the, the handwriting on the wall that you know, God was not going to resurrect this. How many times we, you know, I like to equate this to, you know, God spelling out his answers. You know, we pray for our business, we pray for certain things, and, you know, God begins to answer us by saying, N, O, but in our Western culture, we want everything now, we want everything quickly but we think no is his answer when in fact he's not done with his answer. N-O-T-Y-E-T. -E the Lord's time is not our time. And many times it's not a no, it's just saying not now. So, <clears throat> and 
And I think we get conditioned as Christians a lot of times. I always go back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's lugging Isaac up the mountaintop. He's about ready to sacrifice, and we all know the story, right? And what happens? Halfway up the mountain, God provides a ram in the thicket, right? I think a lot of times we as Christians have read that story and we approach a problem knowing that or thinking that God is going to provide the ram in the thicket for us. But you know what? There is a sovereign nature to God. Sometimes God takes pleasure in the sacrifice. And he doesn't provide that ram in the thicket. It doesn't make him a bad God, but he has a different plan. There's a different purpose to what he wants to do in those situations. And it's just like parents. If you give your kids everything they ask for, they're going to end up being spoiled. But there is something that happens through time and delay, right? That can only happen in that process. The Jews, or the, the, the Israelites, had a, a process of wine purification in the Old Testament. And how that worked was there was a series of vessels. You would have a tall one, then you'd have a squatty one, and then maybe a wide one here. But every time the juice would be poured in from one vessel, that vessel fulfilled a purpose. And maybe the one that was long with the, the narrow neck, no light, it increased the fermentation, and it caused something to happen in those grapes that could not happen any other way. They would go from that vessel to the other vessel from the next vessel, but there's a series of about six or seven vessels that they would go through to be drinkable wine. If you don't go through that process, you're not drinkable in the end. And sometimes God allows us to go through the wilderness. Sometimes he allows us to spend 40 years on the backside of the desert. Sometimes he allows us to spend nine years in Potiphar's prison. That doesn't make him a bad God. But he is trying to do something in our lives so that he can do what he wants to do in this earth to extend his kingdom. Amen? So where we were at is at that particular time, and I'm always very careful about sharing this because you know, people get kind of weirded out by this, but at that particular time, we had a, we had a house that was 6,000 square feet, $1.5 million. We had BMWs, we had Lexus. And this morning, I didn't even realize this until, you know, this morning, and I'm up, up here. This was our carpet. This was our rug in our dining room. This right here. I gave it to the church. This rug cost $10,000. And I'm not saying that to brag or boast, but that's just where we were at. We, we could afford everything that I just said. I mean, we weren't overextended. That was just where we were at. God had blessed us. Um, so, um, then God began to take it all. We had everything, what the world would say, everything, and then we had nothing. Literally, we were 24 hours from being homeless. We, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, we had you know, the big house. In that house, you know, we had... 19-foot ceilings, and you got to have big furniture that goes in that ceiling. We had to empty out that house. I had to do it in literally three days. And I had to do it by myself, and I had no money to do it. I had no money to afford a moving van. I had nothing. But I had to clear out the house. 
And it was just, it was one of those things that, you know, almost takes you out, but you have to rely upon something bigger and better than, than you. And uh, so I remember that. And uh, Meg Keevan, God bless her soul, we went to, Christian, we went to uh, church with her, a capital Christian in Boise, Idaho. She came up to me and said, Jeff, I got a solution to your problem. Because not only was I supposed to get everything out of the house in three days, but I had to go somewhere else. And I didn't have anywhere else to go. So Meg comes over and she says, Jeff, I got, I got a solution for you. I talked with the homeowner. The house is currently in foreclosure. But he said you can live in it for maybe three, four, maybe even six months. But all it takes, we need a $400 deposit. And I remember looking at Meg saying, Meg, I don't have it. I don't have $400. So it was one of those things that, you know, what are you going to do? She came back the next day. She says, uh, me and my husband, Oli, were cleaning out a, a closet, and we were saving for a trip, and we'd just been putting coins and dollars in this jar, and you know what? It totals up to $400. And she says, I feel like I need to give this to you. And I remember looking at her, and I remember just bawling like a baby. I mean, I'm just bawling like a baby. Because I had no clue what was going to happen. But you know what? It's just like, it's like Elijah by the brook Cherith, right? He gives you what you need at the time that you need it. And at that particular time, that $400 enabled us to get into another house. But you know what? It wasn't the end. We got out of that house. We had to move another seven times in, I think it was six years. We felt like nomads. We were living on food stamps. We had a situation where um, we were on first-name basis with uh, the people that were serving us papers. They'd come and serve us. We'd get, you know, probably three or four a week. We were on the first. We were on first name basis with these marshals, and it's just—it's humiliating. But you know what? If you have fear of man issues or fear of failure issues, that's one way to deal with them. Amen. My ways are not his ways. I'll tell you. But, um, anyways. That was all that. We would have, uh, we'd have money in the bank, and because of the credit situation we were in, people could just come in and sweep every penny out of that account. So you would save up maybe $100 to buy groceries or whatever, but they could come in and just take every penny out. And, you know, it's, 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 it's almost the worst thing that can happen. It's almost, I mean, I don't I mean to minimize rate for a woman, but that's how you feel. You feel like you've been violated. And uh, it's very humbling, very humiliating. But anyways, that's where we were at. Now, I'm not going to focus any more on that. I could go on more and more. But you know what? God did something in that process. He was pouring us from vessel to vessel to vessel to vessel so that we could be drinkable wine at the end of that process. And I am here to tell you that as I stand here right now, God has restored every penny. 
And I haven't physically calculated this, but he has almost doubly restored everything that we have lost, had lost. God promises that he will restore what the canker worm has eaten. Amen? Amen. He promises that. What happens in the book of Job? How many times do we focus on the sufferings of Job? And by the way, that's a non-biblical term, the sufferings of Job. But you know what is biblical? The perseverance of Job. But we focus on the sufferings of Job, and it is horrible. The first 41 chapters focus on that, but the 42nd chapter is what we need to focus on. What happens in the 42nd chapter? Everything is restored doubly. He lives the rest of his life under that situation. Most scholars will tell you that the 41 chapters of Job encompass between three and five years. He lived almost 140 years under the blessing of God. We need to focus and have the faith to believe that God is going to restore what the canker worm has eaten. Amen? We cannot be afraid of wealth. We cannot be afraid of what God wants to do with our finances. Now, what I learned, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boil this down to about seven. I'm not even sure how much time I got. I think I'm running over, but if that's okay. Oh, yeah? Okay. All right. <laughs> if he said it, then we're doing it. Um, but the key learnings. God has a plan, and it's not yours. Amen? God has a plan, and it is not yours. His plan supersedes our plan. His plan is not going to be the way that we would draw it up, but you know what? It's going to be the best plan. He wants us to serve him on his terms, not on ours. But how many times do we put God in a box? How many times do we tell God, I'll do this if you do that? How dare we do that? How dare we do that? God wants to serve us, us to serve him on his terms, not on ours. And you know what? God's plan isn't always the most convenient. You know, he, he just, it's not the most convenient. And, you know, we can laugh about that, but it is true. But his ways so far exceed our ways. He's operating in that 10th dimension, right? He knows our frame. And I, I held on to this scripture. I prayed this daily. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God never gives us more than we're able to handle without that way of an escape. Amen? God never gives us more than we're able to handle. I leaned on that. I prayed over that. I bled over that. And it is true. It is absolutely true. But what I thought I could handle, God knew better. God gets us to a point like a rubber band where he's stretching us, not to break us, but to increase our capacity. The farther you pull back that bowstring, the farther you go when it's released. So he's, he's causing that increase to increase our capacity to handle. Next is, be careful what you pray for. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. My prayers... Before all this happened, I mean, seriously, was God, I want more of you. 
God, I want to go deeper in you. God, I want to use, I want to be used in signs and wonders. God, I, you know, I want you more than anything. Well, you know what? God likes to answer those prayers. We don't like the way he answers them. Because the only way he can answer them is that he's got to get to the deepest parts of our heart because no flesh can prosper in the presence of God. And we have got to get rid of that flesh. And that flesh does not come off the bone very easily. Extreme situations require extreme measures. Extraordinary situations require extraordinary measures. Obedience always rates higher than knowledge. No matter what you think, God doesn't care about your opinion. He doesn't want your opinion. He doesn't need it. All he wants is our obedience. If he says it, do we do it? If he says it, do we question him why he wants us to do it? It shouldn't be. God wants our obedience. If he says something, do it. Opinion requires knowledge, which without faith leads to pride. God resists the proud, but he embraces the humble. And this is probably the, the bottom line to everything we've been talking about. God is trying to get all of us to a place of humility. Because that is a sweet aroma to the Holy Spirit, is our humility. I want to take a talk real briefly. Um, in the middle of all the turmoil that we were going through, we, uh, we adopted two kids from Ethiopia. In 2006, December 30th of 2006, we brought two kids home from Ethiopia. Um, they were 14 and 9 at the time, knew very, very little English at the time, but we brought them to Boise, Idaho. So December 30th, you can imagine, Boise, Idaho, cold, snow on the ground. They don't even have a word in their vocabulary for snow. So they're probably wondering, what the heck am I got myself into here? But obedience. This started in July of 2005. We were in Kibera slum. And I was part of a team from City Harvest Church. Pastor Bob was with us, and there were other people with us as well. But we had the honor to go into a classroom in the Kabira slum. And this school was about 400 people. And we, we were ushered into a back classroom. There was about the equivalent of, of, in the U.S., of seventh graders in this classroom. So I asked the teacher, I said, what are these kids studying? And, and uh, the teacher says they're studying physics. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, seventh graders studying physics. I've got two, three kids in high school that have never even touched the subject of physics. But we've got seventh graders that go to school eight to ten hours a day, six days a week that are studying physics. Now, the first time I went to Africa was with the international director of Faith Comes by Hearing, Morgan Jackson. And I remember being overwhelmed with the need in Africa, and specifically Ghana at that particular time. And all I remember, it's just something that, that has been burned in my heart. He said, Jeff, the world's poor and illiterate. They don't want to hand out. They just want to hand up. And all I could think of was looking at these 40 kids in this room of about 10 feet by maybe 20 feet, no light. There were two little holes in the back of the room. Uh, 40 kids, 
bench desks studying physics. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, how many Tiger Woodses are sitting in this, cl in this classroom? How many Nobel laureates are sitting in this classroom? They will never leave that they will never leave the slum. Only, uh, it's about 99.5% of the, the, the people ever leave the slum. So these kids, no matter how talented, no matter how hungry they are to learn, are never going to leave. But all that went through my mind was, give a kid a chance, give a kid a chance, give a kid a chance. So we began to talk about that, and this is where we were at our stage of life. We're flying home, Robin and I, we're sitting in business class, and then I look over to her and say, dear, what do you think about adopting? Now, at that time, we were 45 years old. All three of our kids were out of the house. We, were, we had achieved what the world tries to achieve. We're empty nesters. It's time to live for ourselves now. God has different plans. So in typical American fashion, we get back to the States, we're praying about this for two weeks, and then it begins to lessen and wane and wane and wane. And after a couple months, it's a, it's a distant thought. Fast forward five months, I'm getting off a plane in Seattle, going, getting ready to celebrate Christmas with my family, and I get off the plane in Seattle, and I look behind me, and there's my wife. She's crying. And I'm saying, okay, what's going on here? So I ask her, dear, what's going on? She says, I think the Lord just spoke to me. Now, I've learned to listen to my wife when she says something like that. That is not something that, that I don't take, I mean, I take very seriously. I mean, she has a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that I don't have. And uh, I said, well, what did he say? <laughs> he said, I whispered to you in July, do I have to yell at you to get your attention? Ouch. How many times do we hear that wee small voice, that whisper, Holy Spirit, telling us to do something, and we just kind of blush it off? We don't take it seriously. We pray for it for two weeks, and we let it wane. How many times? How many times does the Lord try to yell at us to get our attention? Amen? All I can tell you is that I did not want the Lord to yell at me, so that started the process we were in that process for about a year. December of 2006, we have two kids. We were, we were told at that time, when you adopt an older male internationally, be prepared that less than 50% graduate from high school. Less than 50% graduate from high school because they can't acclimate. They, you know, they're, they're constantly behind in English. They're constantly behind, you know, three, four, five grades. But you know what? My son graduated from high school. He graduated with a 3.2 grade point average. He also got a full-ride scholarship to play soccer at Grand Canyon University. He graduated from college about a year and a half ago. Actually, it's two years ago now. And it was all because I listened to the Holy Spirit. It was not something that I wanted to do. It's not something that I, I needed to do. But it was out of obedience, out of obedience. God wants us to obey. His ways so far exceed our ways. If I would not have done that, no, no I am, 
if we had not listened, if we had not obeyed, what would have happened to that kid? Venture to say, he wouldn't have gotten a college degree. But God has a plan, and it's so much greater than ours. We have to have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us. We can't always live on the mountaintops. Mountaintops are the glory. That's what we want. That's where Moses met God, the burning bush. We can't always live there. But you know what? To enjoy the mountaintops, we've got to spend time in the valleys. The valleys, that's hard. That's where work occurs. That's where the soil is turned. That's where the seeds are planted. That's where the trees are pruned. That's where the shepherd roams. We need to be comfortable in the valley. It's not always the easiest time, but you know what? The valley is where fruit is grown. Amen? And one principle that I've learned ever since I got saved is that when God gives you an experience on the mountaintop, never question it once you come down the mountain. So if God tells you you're having that, that mountaintop experience with God, God shows you something, God tells you something, never question it when you come down from the mountain. But it's so easy to do that because now, just like Moses came down with the, the Ten Commandments, he got caught up in the, the, you know, all the orgies and everything that was happening. <clears throat> we need to have those mountaintop experiences, but we need to not change our minds when we come down from the mountain. Um, those valleys is where character is produced. Okay, walking in faith does not eliminate your problems. Okay, just because you're walking in faith doesn't mean you're not going to be, you're going to be problem free. It doesn't mean that. But you know, it just gives us a way to hope and to cope and to, to deal with those problems. That's all it does. Walking in the Spirit gives us the strength not to fulfill the lusts of our own flesh, Galatians 5 and 16. Faith is like a muscle. You gain strength by using your muscles. You gain increased faith by exercising that muscle. Jim Stockdale was a POW in the Hanoi Hilton. Simply he said, I never wavered in my faith. Now, I will guarantee you there was a lot of preparatory work for him to say that before he got to the Hanoi Hilton. Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us to the level where we would have faith, where we could make the same statement if we find ourselves in our own Hanoi Hiltons, that our faith would not fail us in the very hour that we need it? I love the example of pressure. Pressure and stress. And we were, you know, during our situation, we were, I mean, it was, it was enough to kill you. But you know, pressure can destroy as well as it can create diamonds. Right? What are we going to allow the pressure and the stress of our lives to do? We're going to allow it to create the diamonds that God can place in the, in, the, in the crown, that he can display in that crown? 
or are we going to let it crush us? The choice is ours. Now, God wants our lives to sing. Now, you guys are probably saying, okay, what the heck is he talking about? Now, contrary to what most people believe, and maybe you millennials, you know, we put a, we put a meal in the microwave, and we set the timer, and when the timer goes off, we know it's, we know it's done. Well, in the old days, and I'm talking in the old days, Old Testament old days, what did they do when they didn't have a timer? What did a potter do when he didn't have a timer? How did he know when his piece was done? You know why? You know how he knew? Because he would listen. And when he heard the singing coming out of the oven, he knew that the piece was done. That's what I mean, let our lives sing. Don't come out of the oven that God has placed you in until you are ready. Sing it. Because I guarantee you, if you're pulled out of that oven before you're singing, you're going to go back into that oven. And, you know, let's do it once, right? Okay. So that's what I meant by that. And finally... And this is probably the most important one. It's not what you have, but it's rather it's who you have. It has nothing to do with the big house that we had and all the nice little toys that we had. But at the end of the day, what got us through the most horrible situation in our life was who we had. Was who we had. It's the old joke where, you know, you see the, the funeral procession, how many, you don't see many U-Hauls being towed by hearses, right? You can have all the wealth in the world, but you can't take it with you, right? But don't let that deter us from, you know, having wealth. There is godly wealth. And God needs to pour out the wealth. He has promised that he would take the wealth of the wicked and transfer it to the wise. Now, God has a lot of work to do in this world. And I've been fortunate enough to travel the world. I've been to Africa, you know, probably almost two dozen times now. I helped start a business in Nairobi, Kenya. We adopted kids in Ethiopia. I'm helping Alessandro in Tajikistan with the pizza business. And, but you know what? There is a lot of work that still needs to be done. And quite honestly, it's going to take money to do it. Not just money. It's going to take people of faith. But we have to embrace God's blessing when it comes to, to wealth and to finances. But we have to have the attitude that when God pours out his blessing, that we have open hands, that we're willing to live off what sticks to our fingers but what goes through, goes through. We have to have that attitude. It's the old saying, you know, money is a, is a lousy master. It's a wonderful tool, but it's a lousy master. So, with that, that was our story. Uh, this is only the second time I've shared it with, with, uh, with in, in public. I've shared it, you know, individually. But you know what? God did a miracle. We had a, 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 a huge amount of wealth which we lost and then he replaced it doubly. Isn't that wonderful? 
If he did it, if he did it for me, why can't he do it for you? Do we have the faith to believe him for it? Do we? I'm here to say we need to if we don't. And that's what I want to pray tonight as we close. I want to pray that we would have the faith to believe God that he truly is a God of abundance, that he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that he truly has the resources and controls the resources of the kings of the world that he can redirect to his children. But we have to do our part. We have to have that level of faith where we can believe him at that word, at that promise. Amen? Amen. So, with that being said, who here would like prayer tonight with regards to their finances and maybe even an increase in wealth, not for your own personal gain, but just so that you can be a conduit for the Holy Spirit to use in these times. Can I have a raise of hands? You know, we did this in the morning, and I I would say it was probably, you know, 60% of the people raised their hands, and it's no different tonight. I think that that the devil has done such a good job in making us feel ashamed to ask when in fact God has those resources. We need to do our part, absolutely. We need to clean out this vessel because what comes through pure, if it goes through a contaminated vessel, it's going to come out contaminated. We have to do our part to clean this out so what comes through pure, impure, goes out pure. So I want to pray. I'm not going to ask everybody to come up here, but I would ask those that raised their hand to stand. And I would ask you to extend your faith, not in me, but in him. He can do it all. Nothing is beyond the realm of possibility for him. He operates in that 10th dimension. We don't see it all. He is outside those nine dots. And so I want to pray for you tonight, and I want to stand with you where it says, where two or more are gathered in your name, there he shall be in our midst, that faith will be released, and that the finances that you are asking for will be released, not because of what you've done, but because of your faith in him. Amen? So Father, we love you for all that you've done. We love you for all that you will do. And God, we do believe that you own a cattle on a thousand hills. Lord, we do believe that you will not allow us to beg for bread. Lord, we do believe that you are in the process and have the desire to transfer, transfer the wealth from the wicked to the wise. So Lord, without doubting, without unbelieving, without any fear in our hearts, we ask in faith that you would pour out your blessing, that you would pour it out in such a great way that it would be so great that we could not handle it. So, Lord, you hear the prayers of those that are standing in faith right now, the needs in their lives, the needs that they have in their heart. I ask, God, that you would supernaturally meet those needs, that you would show yourself strong, that you would prove to them that you are the God of abundance, that you are God of prosperity, that you are the God that has all things in control. And so, Lord, I pray that be it unto them according to their faith, Raise their faith. Work in them, Lord. Purify them so that their faith can be elevated, Lord. That, Lord, that the faith, so to speak, that their ceilings would become their floors. 
And so God, I ask and believe without doubt right now that you have heard this prayer, that you will, that you will answer and respond to this prayer. And I ask for it to be done in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.